just be educated about it. So it's nothing that you need to, you know, run out and panic about, but it is something you just need to understand how it works and plan your business accordingly and and just be aware of that. You are listening to US Tax, a podcast for Australian accountants with US clients. Welcome to update 23 of US Tax about US state taxes. This is Heide Robson. So far, we have always spoken about US federal taxes. Now, let's look at state taxes because state taxes are often a lot more relevant for our Australian clients than federal taxes. US federal taxes are most likely zero thanks to the double tax agreement with the US. But US state taxes often are not covered by this treaty. So while your client might not be paying any federal taxes in the US they might be paying state taxes. So today, let's start looking at US state taxes. Francis Ellington of GHJ in Los Angeles will walk you through state taxes across the US. The first question to Francis Ellington is, how do state income taxes work? Do you need a physical presence or is there some form of economic nexus? And just quickly, sorry, the audio quality is not great. It starts with quite a strong distortion up to minute three, and then we swap microphones to fix the issue. And it changes the sound slightly for the better, but all up, the audio quality is not great. But what Francis is saying is really helpful and a great introduction into US state taxes. So here's Francis Ellington. And remember that the sound will get better in about 90 seconds. <music> For U.S. state and local tax, there are a variety of different jurisdictions that will impose tax both on individuals and business entities. This is different from, for example, federal taxes where taxes are collected for Social Security, future things like Medicare, other items that fund government federal projects such as infrastructure, such as federal budgets that would ultimately impact all states rather than a particular state. When we talk about state and local taxes, these are the programs and sources of funding that relate to things like schools, public school systems, things like public transportation, local community funding of projects, and it goes on and on. So for the most part, It's interesting to think about the difference between federal and state funding, because from a U.S. federal tax perspective, all of the money that goes into federal taxes can ultimately be run at a deficit, which it has for a long time. When we look at state taxes and local taxes, it's a different system. And there's a budget each year for the state jurisdictions, and they rely on that state and local revenue to be able to fund the programs that are in their budget for each year. And that's very important because there is no deficit and the tax revenue that's brought in is very important. For state taxes, you can't rent a deficit. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Why can't states not go into debt? Because that's what it basically is. When you run a deficit, you basically go into debt, correct? So for state purposes, they have a fixed budget each year that is approved and there's a process for that. Each state typically has what we call a rainy day fund or a, a backup funding. For example, if the economy were to go down or certain projects were to happen and there wasn't 
adequate funding for those items. However, the states don't have the ability to go into debt. So because of this, each year they have to specifically allocate funding and revenue. So sometimes states will actually get money from the federal government, which is a way that they can get certain funding. But the way that states specifically generate revenue on their own is generally related to taxes and other projects. But the majority of revenue that any states or local jurisdictions bring in is related to taxes. So states can't go into debt. And if for some reason the revenue is lower than expected, then it's bad luck. Then schools have to close or hospitals have to cut their services or somehow the state has to make do. Exactly. Do the states use the same identifiers like for the federal tax? So do you also use EINs and SSNs and ITINs? Or do businesses or individuals need to get a completely separate identifier for state taxes? Great question. So generally speaking, you use the same identification number that you would, for example, for federal taxes. And that would be specifically like a social security number if you're an individual or an EIN, which is an employer identification number, if you were an entity. Certain states will issue a separate ID number, not necessarily for individuals, but sometimes for legal entities. So LLCs, corporations, partnerships that file tax returns for different reasons, they may have a separate account number, but that would not change, for example, the employer identification number which will also be reported consistent with federal. So you might have an extra state number, but it wouldn't be something that replaces the number that you already have. I see. Okay. So if you have an Australian business doing business in all 50 states, that Australian business would have an, most likely an EIN and then also potentially additional identifiers in certain states that use separate identifiers. That is correct. The issue with the state identifiers and state registration is that it's not generalized, for example, one state, possibly one number. It also relates back to potentially what you're registering for. So we might have entities or individuals that register, for example, for an income tax, which would be one registration or one type of number, contrary to something like a sales tax, which would be considered something separate, which may have a separate identifier number. So this can get very messy very quickly. Do you know if the big states, so California, Florida, um, I don't know which ones are the big states, Texas, which are the big states by population? California, I think, is the largest one. And then Florida? California is definitely the biggest from a state perspective. And in terms of revenue generated and tax rates, it's definitely a, a strong contender for, for the biggest state tax liability concern, for, especially for Australian businesses or individuals. Other states that are large include New York, and Texas is, is also an important state as well. Florida is, in terms of population, it's definitely growing, but Florida itself does not have a state income tax for individuals. So there's a small corporate tax, but part of the attractiveness, actually, of, of the state of Florida is there is no state income tax for individuals. And so do you know if California has a separate identifier or whether they just use the EIN and the SSN and the ITIN? For California, there are different registrations. So just let's just take a corporate entity, for example. 
So if you have a corporate entity that is doing business in California, typically you'll have a legal registration with the Secretary of State, and that will give you a corporation number with the state of California. In addition to that, if you have a sales tax obligation, so say you're a business and you're, you're selling tangible products to California customers and shipping them to California, then you would have a separate sales tax account number with that obligation. You typically would not have in California an additional number for income or franchise purposes. You would use your employer identification number or that legal corporation number that I just mentioned. But again, if there are other types of taxes, for example, related to payroll tax or property tax or local business taxes, there would also be other registrations and and numbers to, to consider. How do you register for state taxes? You basically have to go to every state and register. I just imagine this to be an absolutely bureaucratic nightmare. Yes, it, it depends on the level of activity, which we'll, we'll probably get into some more details around that. But for state tax registrations, there is a process that would be with each respective state and oftentimes with each respective tax type. So we have to kind of think through that a little bit. Usually taxpayers don't have to register in every state for multiple tax types. Usually Maybe it's one state where they operate or one state where they have employees and then maybe a couple other states to consider. But it is a registration process and there are some automated software tools and providers that help with some of that process as well as the compliance. For example, like sales tax filings or other filings that are required after you do register your your business. And so if we now start talking about taxes, what are the most common taxes that states raise? I believe it's sales tax, it's state income tax, and then possibly something obscure that's called a franchise tax. So for the franchise tax, uh, I'm just going to talk about that a, a little bit separately, because the franchise tax, sometimes it's just a flat fee or minimum fee. And For many jurisdictions, if they have a franchise tax, it's usually reported on the income tax filing. So there aren't many states where, you know, there's a separate obligation to consider that's separately for franchise tax. For income tax, it's interesting because that is a decent part of state's tax revenue, especially for states like California, where the rate can be upwards of 12 sometimes even 13%, contrary to a state like Texas, which does not have an income tax for individuals. And then we look at the corporate tax rate. So for California, the corporate tax rate is about 8.84%. And the income and franchise tax is kind of built into one return for California purposes. For Texas purposes, we have a franchise tax And it is very different from a typical net income tax because in Texas and states where they just have a franchise or a gross receipts tax, it actually doesn't matter if you're in income or not. So, for example, you could be operating at a loss for tax purposes, but you still owe a franchise tax in Texas because it's based on gross receipts. Hmm. Other types of taxes like sales tax are generally, you know, assessed by most states. And that is a large revenue driver. 
But again, that would be some a tax that is passed on to your customer. So rather than you paying that tax at the entity level, typically when you're the business selling the product, you're charging your customer that amount, and then you're ultimately just remitting it to the respective jurisdiction. So it is a significant revenue raiser, but it's not meant to be paid directly by the businesses. So talking about sales tax, I understand that it works quite differently to the way it works in Australia or in Europe, where it is basically a value-added tax. So it's charged all the way through the supply chain. But I understand in the US, you don't actually charge all along the pipeline. You only charge at the very end. And hence, you only charge the final sale to the end consumer. And only that sale is subject to sales tax, but nothing before that, correct? That's absolutely correct. And it is a major difference with, for example, value-added tax regimes or GST regimes. And it is important that, for example, Australian businesses understand how the sales tax system works. So the important thing is understanding the concept of a retailer. So, for example, if you're a manufacturer or if you're a wholesaler and you're selling to other businesses, that are then reselling to end users down the chain, then you may not have a direct sales tax obligation. But if you are that retailer and you're shipping to customers that will actually use the product and not use it as a material or another place in the supply chain to then further sell down the road, if you're selling to that end user, then you'd probably have an obligation to collect sales tax. It's important to understand that that is just on that, you know, the end user transaction. But there is a concept called resale or resale exemption or resale certificate. And a lot of times if you're selling to, for example, another business and you're not selling to the end user, you will need to have a conversation or an item in your sales process that really documents or collects that exemption certificate from your customer who might be that actual retailer. And that would keep your business safe from any future sales tax exposure obligation because it essentially makes sure that the entity you're selling to is then going to be responsible for collecting the sales tax down the chain. Yes. This system, I can imagine, would have worked perfectly fine 10, 20 years ago when you had a clear distinction between retail and wholesale. But nowadays, the uh, line between retail and wholesale is very fluid, especially with online sales. Most online businesses have both. They have retail clients and wholesale clients in different proportions. Some online businesses are mainly retail with some wholesale and others are mainly wholesale with some retail. But the line between retail and wholesale is very fluid. And so I can imagine this becomes harder and harder to draw this line. Can you see that it starts being harder and harder to administer this? I agree. I would just say that I think it still is important from a sales tax process and when you onboard new customers or when you have a transaction that you clearly identify in your software, in your sales process, if the customer is at retail or wholesale. Because absent any exemption or any documentation that it's a wholesale transaction, you essentially have to charge sales tax and add that to your invoices. And that's something that you want to be aware of up front, especially if you, for example, are required to collect sales tax based on the location where your product is being shipped. 
I can imagine it's quite easy to defraud that system to pretend to be wholesale when you're actually retail or in the end, it's probably similar to private consumption of business expenses. You know, the line between business and private in small businesses is very blurred. And so I can imagine in small business, the line between retail and wholesale is probably also very blurred. Yes, I think for smaller numbers or smaller dollars, it may not be as much of a concern. But when you start talking about millions of dollars in sales and, for example, sales tax exposure, liability, different obligations that may exist, I think that it's important that we get that right because the states do have a way to locate different businesses, to audit them, to make sure the numbers that are being reported are correct. And I'll, I will say those audits are not fun. <laughs> So to the extent that you can make it a clean process, automate as possible, understand where your obligations are and keep those records, you'll be set up in a much better place going forward to be accurate and in a good standing for tax purposes. So the two important sets of data is your client or customer. Is it a private household or is it a business? And if it's a business, then you don't have to worry about sales tax. And if it's a private household, then you need to charge sales tax. So that's one set of data. And then the other set of data is very important where the end consumer is, because I imagine that it's the state where the end consumer is that gets the sales tax. So the sales tax is collected based on where you're shipping it to, so where the product is delivered. But I would say that, you know, when we talk about selling to end users, just be cautious if you're selling to a business entity that they are, in fact, going to resell the product and they're not actually using the product themselves. Right. So businesses could be in end users as well, even though it's it's not as common. Yes. It puts a lot of onus on the selling business. It does. It does. Good. So it's the uh, state where I'm selling into. Otherwise it would be really easy because then I would just be based in one state coming from Australia. I would have one warehouse and then I would just have to worry about sales tax in that one state. But because it's where I'm selling the product to, because it's like that, it can then mean that I have to file for sales tax in all 50 states. If they have a sales tax, we come to that later. Some states don't have sales tax. It's five states that don't have sales tax. Alaska, Delaware, New Hampshire, Montana and Oregon. So if I sell into those, I don't have to worry about anything. But if I sell into any of the others, I have to consider sales tax. So it's actually interesting and somewhat misleading at certain times. So Alaska does not officially have a state sales tax, but they do have local jurisdiction sales tax, which has similar rules to, to other U.S. state jurisdictions. So it's just another nuance that I'm sure isn't too much for you to worry about at this time, but it is important to understand a couple things for sales tax. So we just talked about, you know, where you're shipping your product to. It's also important to understand the taxability of your product. So if it's like a consumer product or something that, you know, is tangible, that's clearly subject to sales tax, then, okay, we'll kind of work that out. But if it's something like a food product or something that might be exempt from sales tax, that's something else we, we kind of need to think about. And then the third thing is, is understanding you're selling into the state. Yes, your product uh, appears to be subject to sales tax, 
do you have an obligation? For each state you're looking into, basically, you have to look at, do they have an exemption? Because I can imagine the exemptions are different in every state. And I can imagine common exemptions would be fresh food, possibly medical products, possible education. Would those products possibly have an exemption from sales tax? Yes, but it varies by state and it could be a partial exemption. So a reduced rate, for example, but not a 100% exemption. So it's just important that before you start selling across the U.S. that you understand what the, what the taxability is of your product. So you have to assess three things when you sell into a new state. The first one is, does an exemption apply to your type of product? The second one is, is there actually local sales tax? So even if there is no state sales tax, is there local sales tax between local jurisdiction? And I can imagine that becomes a nightmare if you then have to go to different council areas and work out whether they sell sales tax or not. And then the third question is basically, if there is no exemption, Apart from the local sales tax, what is your state sales tax obligation? Those three things you basically have to work out. And I can imagine based on this, it probably makes sense for Australian businesses to run very targeted advertising. And so basically only to advertise in certain states. Yeah, it's interesting because you could definitely target those jurisdictions. But if you, for example, have a website where you sell your product, and anyone can order, and you're actually shipping it to other states, not just California and Florida, then, you know, that could easily spread into a sales tax obligation in other states if, if you allow products to be purchased from customers in those jurisdictions. Hmm. Do you know if Shopify collects sales tax per state? Yes. So Shopify actually, and some of the other platforms are very automated. So What Shopify will do is you'll make sure to set up the platform correctly. So making sure that they're aware of where you would like to collect sales tax. Essentially, when you have customers that buy through the website, through Shopify, if you have the sales tax turned on, then it will automatically charge the customers from those jurisdictions sales tax when they buy the product. Yes, but you first need to register for sales tax in that state, correct? Yes. Well, the first step would really just be understanding where you have nexus. So do you have an obligation to collect sales tax in that state? And, and we can talk about more details about what that means. But assuming that you do have a sales tax obligation, Shopify can absolutely help you collect that tax but you will still need to actually file a return and remit the actual tax collected outside of Shopify. So there are other platforms, for example, TaxJar, Avalara, other online platforms you can file directly with the state to help you really facilitate that process. Shopify will charge the sales tax to the customer and then pass the full proceeds to you. And then what you do with those proceeds is up to you. You know, you then have to file and pay the sales tax to the um, revenue office. Correct, yes. So all the sales tax that is collected and you receive, you have to remit that legally to the different jurisdictions. You covered the nexus before. Can we talk about the nexus? Because I think there are four nexus, and two are straightforward and two are very difficult. Yeah, so I think we should just talk about nexus in general. So nexus would be the obligation or the right for a state to assess sales tax or income tax or any specific tax on an entity or individual. And for a long time, 
for sales tax and for income tax purposes in U.S. states, you had to have a physical presence in those jurisdictions for them to be able to assess tax. So physical presence, meaning an employee, an office, inventory, something like physically present in that jurisdiction would cause you nexus. And for example, in California, that would cause income tax or sales tax obligations. Fast forward to 2018, there is a, a very important U.S. Supreme Court case called South Dakota versus Wayfair. And essentially, this case was very landmark from a state tax perspective because it allowed for essentially economic nexus for state tax purposes. And that could be simply having sales or a number of transactions to customers in a jurisdiction. And that would cause you to have nexus as well. So we go from a a regime that essentially required physical presence to a situation where you could just be operating an online business and have significant sales or transactions into, for example, Texas or California, and all of a sudden you have state tax obligations in the U.S. And that is particularly scary for companies overseas because you may not have, you know, operations. You may not understand that those those requirements exist. And sales tax, for example, economic nexus can be triggered regardless if you have a U.S. federal tax requirement or if you're treaty protected for federal tax purposes. So sales tax is a whole different ballgame. And I can imagine there would be thousands and thousands of overseas online businesses who are selling into the U.S. and completely disregarding state tax. Yeah, it is possible. And it's very difficult to police unless you go to the couriers and say, tell me what parcels you delivered to where and where did those parcels come from? You know, if it's not sent through a 3PL, but directly sent from overseas, it's, I can imagine it's very difficult to police. Yeah, it is important that you have access to reports. So, for example, a Shopify report are easily pulled and, and reviewed. But as you mentioned, if you don't have a, a system like that or it's based in another country, it could be a little difficult to, to even get an understanding of where your customers are. You mentioned the physical presence. Does a 3PL distribution center, does that count as a physical presence? It does. And that's because typically with 3PLs, you would hold inventory in those jurisdictions, and that would be considered property in those states where you have the 3PL. So is it possible that if I just have a warehouse in that state, but I don't sell a single dollar in that state, is it possible that it triggers sales tax? Or unlikely? So it would trigger sales tax still because any physical presence in a state would cause sales tax nexus. However, you would have no liability and no obligation to collect any tax if you don't have any customers in the state. Technically, it exists. There's no, I guess, concern if you don't have any customers. So even though you have a nexus due to a physical presence through your distribution center, you are actually only taxed on the sales you actually make in that state. Yes. So it doesn't matter where your distribution center is, the actual sales tax will be the same because it will be based on actual sales, not on where the center is. Correct? Yes, correct. And I would say a lot of our clients set up distribution centers in places like Nevada or Texas or Florida. And that's driven more by those jurisdictions, just favorable tax regimes. 
more so for income tax purposes and less so for sales tax, but it's still an interesting dynamic as to what makes sense in terms of where to hold your inventory. So when we come to state income tax, it might still be important to choose the right state. But for sales taxes, it basically doesn't matter where you place your warehouse because you're taxed on the extra sale and not on where the inventory is. Yeah, exactly. So we covered the physical presence nexus and we covered the economic nexus. When I look at the official list of the four nexus, I can't see anywhere where it says physical presence or I can see the economic nexus. But for physical presence, I tell you the four nexus I have. I have click-through nexus, I have affiliated nexus, I have marketplace nexus, and I have economic nexus. So you covered the economic nexus, which is basically where I'm selling to. But which one is the uh, physical presence nexus? Is it the marketplace, the affiliate nexus, or the click-through nexus? So none of the above. So economic nexus, again, it just means you can have nexus without having a physical presence in the state. Click-through nexus, affiliate nexus, and marketplace nexus are probably more ancillary nexus terms that still relate back to economic nexus. I would say economic nexus is the primary driver for sales tax nexus. These other terms are just ways that you know, up until a few years ago, before that Supreme Court case was decided, were other ways that states could try to go after remote sellers. But now we have these overarching economic nexus rules that lowered that threshold. So the rules that are actually enforced, I would say, are more so just purely based on sales or transaction levels. You know, click-through nexus was assessing nexus by clicking through or other relationships between vendors that have activity on websites. Affiliate nexus may have pulled you in based on activity of one of your related entities. Marketplace nexus, similar concept to economic nexus, but it's on your major selling platforms. So marketplaces would be things like Amazon, eBay, Etsy, these major platforms, which in the past, they avoided collecting a lot of sales tax because they pushed through that liability to the third-party vendors that were selling on their platform. Marketplace Nexus basically just made it a rule, and essentially just the rule is consistent in most states, is that those vendors like Amazon, now rather than pushing through that obligation for sales tax to their sellers, they're just going ahead and collecting that sales tax on the Amazon platform itself, which actually works out much better because the whole problem with internet sales tax is that it was a huge compliance burden for smaller businesses. But now that, for example, Amazon and Etsy are required to collect the sales tax on the seller's behalf, I think it helps solve both sides of the issue because Amazon has the ability to handle all the compliance. The states ultimately get their tax revenue. Smaller businesses don't have to go out and register in all states if they're just selling, for example, on Amazon. So that's kind of how the, the marketplace rules came into play. Okay. So it all starts with physical presence. And if you don't have a physical presence, then the nexus rules come in. And there, the main one is economic nexus, and that's basically just about where you're selling things to. However, if you're selling through a sales platform like Shopify or Etsy or Amazon, then the marketplace can take over 
the collection for you through the marketplace nexus. And then there are also two other ancillary nexuses, which are the click-through nexus and the affiliate nexus that are less relevant, but cover the uh, scenarios you just described. Exactly. So yeah, not to make your head spin, but just important to understand where you have a lot of activity. So if you're selling large dollar amounts or large transactions into different U.S. states, you should just have an idea of where that would be and where those numbers would fall for a 12-month period. I looked at the routes, and a lot of them have thresholds of $100,000, $250,000. I think a state, one state has $500,000. I forgot which one that is. But they're kind of thresholds that means that an Australian business that is starting out in the U.S. first doesn't have to worry about state tax because you know it will take you a while until you get to a half a million dollar turnover in a certain state. But then it also has the number of transactions. And if you sell small consumer products, then you get very quickly above these limits. So some states have 100 transactions, some states have 200 or 300 transactions. But 100 transactions, if you sell a small consumer product like some jewelry or a towel or shoes or something, you would get over this limit within probably within days or weeks. So is it correct that it's either the number of transactions or the sales volume? Or do you have to have both to trigger sales tax? So it depends on the state. So for the lower threshold, the rule that was enacted when the Wayfair case passed was 100,000 of gross receipts sold into the state or 200 transactions. And a lot of jurisdictions just took those numbers and incorporated them into their own state law for economic nexus. There are certain jurisdictions, for example, Texas, California, that only have a sales threshold, for example, $500,000 of goods sold to customers in that state. And I think that is more appropriate because you need a higher threshold to trigger nexus when you have, you know, larger states or larger economies that you're selling more into. And as you mentioned, there are a handful of states that might have a threshold of 250000 or maybe they just have a sales threshold and they don't have a transaction threshold. But it's just important to understand. I think that for the sales threshold, those are the easier ones to follow. Because when you have transaction thresholds, if it's 200 transactions during a year, and as you mentioned, if you're selling towels or shoes and you have, you know, several purchases that could easily add up to 200 transactions and all of a sudden a sales tax obligation, or maybe you have one big customer and you hit that transaction threshold very quickly in a jurisdiction. So things like that, um, we really have to consider what makes sense. So do you truly have a sales tax obligation? Is this a recurring customer? Is this a recurring item that really you will have a sales tax obligation? Or is this a one-off transaction or something that we don't think we're actually going to be doing business in that state or need a sales tax obligation going forward? And you're willing to settle that risk or just understand that you know, there might be a little bit of sales tax exposure, but at this time, it's so low that you don't expect to go out and file in all these jurisdictions where you're hitting a transaction threshold. So you just need to understand what the rules are and what your obligation is. Yeah. Can we use California as an example? So what is the uh, gross sales threshold and what's the transaction threshold for California? If for California, it's 500000 
of gross receipts, and there's no transaction threshold in California. Okay, perfect. And do you happen to know Florida? So it's actually interesting. Florida, for a while, Florida was one of the holdout jurisdictions. So they didn't have an economic nexus threshold until recently. So effective in July of 2021, there is a threshold in Florida. There's no transaction threshold, but there is a 100,000 of gross receipts threshold in Florida that would trigger sales tax. And do you know a state that has a transaction threshold? I just want to understand this transaction threshold better. Mm -hmm. um, for example, Georgia or Virginia, many of the states simply adopted the South Dakota rule. Okay, and so that was... It was 100,000 in gross sales or gross receipts sold into the jurisdiction or 200 transactions. Transactions, yeah. And so if I'm below the $100,000 threshold, but I have over 200 transactions, then I'm subject to sales tax, correct? Yes, that is the technical rule. So it could be either or. Okay, it's either or and not both. But, but there are a couple of states that, you know, require and. So for example, you have to have the number of sales and the number of transactions to exceed their nexus. Most states will be an or, so it could be either or. Yeah. And there's maybe a couple states that have the and, which requires both. And then again, there's a few states like Texas and California that have higher thresholds or simply just a sales threshold. Okay. And just a rough feeling how high sales tax is. In California, for example, I think it's seven and a half percent. Would you have seven and a half state sales tax and then another ten and a half for the local jurisdiction sales tax? No, so the ten and a half would usually be inclusive of the state rate. So for example, in California, we may have a state rate that is seven and a half percent, but then you also have a district tax, which is more of like a county or a district rate. And then you have a local rate as well, which would be more specific to, for example, like the city. So in California, you could have, you know, rates that really vary because the district and local rate wouldn't be consistent, even though the state rate is still going to be the same. So for local jurisdictions that have very low district or local rates, you might have a, a rate as low as eight or nine percent. But for local jurisdictions that have all of these revenue raisers related to sales tax for their jurisdiction, For example, the city of Santa Monica is a, is a jurisdiction that comes to mind that has a fairly high sales tax rate. That rate's going to be over 11%. Okay. And then the 11% would always include the state sales tax, correct? Yeah. Okay. Does it matter which entity I'm trading through with respect to sales tax? So does it matter whether I'm trading through a C-Corp or an S-Corp or an LLC or whether I trade as a foreign corporation? Does any of this matter? My gut feeling is no, but does it? For sales tax purposes, it doesn't. So, for example, if you're a single-member LLC, that would be the entity that is required to register and file sales tax purposes, literally at the, the entity level who is making the sales. So, for state sales tax purposes, you don't have disregarded entities. The single-member LLC would be paying the sales tax. Correct. On the invoice, do you actually state which state you're raising the uh, sales tax for. So if the invoice, for example, says $100 for the product plus 10% sales tax, does it actually state that, for example, that it's seven and a half California sales tax and then two and a half percent for the local jurisdiction sales tax? You would typically see the cumulative rate 
or just kind of a line item that says sales tax and, and how much sales tax you're being charged. But it doesn't list the state and it doesn't break it up into state and local sales tax, correct? Correct. In the system or in your invoice, you would have to just know where your product is being shipped because that is the state or local jurisdiction that you're assessing, basing that sales tax rate on. I just think it's important to just be educated about it. So it's nothing that you need to, you know, run out and panic about, but it is something you just need to understand how it works and plan your business accordingly and just be aware of that. But yeah, I think we're pretty covered on the sales tactics aspect. From the outside, the U.S. looks like one unified entity holding up one flag and pursuing a shared goal. At least it looks like this if you don't drill too deep into U.S. politics. But when it comes to state taxes, the U.S. feels more like the European Union, each state running their own show. It is really confusing and I'm just really glad in Australia we have a federal GST system and not each state doing their own GST thing. In the next update, US 24, let's talk about Californian state taxes. Francis Ellington of GHJ in Los Angeles will discuss Californian state taxes with you and also especially the very important public law 86-272. This public law is very relevant for your clients who are selling merchandise into California from a warehouse outside of California but we will look into that more in another episode. Until next Tuesday, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next update.